Welcome back to Real Talk Unleashed, the Real Ass Veterinary Podcast for Real Ass Veterinary Professionals. My name is Caitlin Sharapova. And I'm Dr. Tasha Stark. And I'm Michelle Peverhouse. And today we have a very exciting guest with us. We have Trish Hake. Trish is a veterinary clinical social worker located in the Virginia Teaching Hospital within the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. She provides support, crisis intervention, grief education, and referrals and resources to animal owners. She works as a member of the veterinary healthcare team to support difficult decision-making, end-of-life care, and the grieving process. She also provides workshops and rounds on well-being, effective client support, and communication with veterinary students, staff, interns, residents, clinicians, and faculty. She received her Master's of Social Work in Clinical Practice at the University of Washington, Seattle, and the Veterinary Social Work Certification at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She is also a certified social worker in animal hospice and palliative care, and a certified trauma treatment professional. Welcome, Trish. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So I would love to start us off by talking about veterinary social work. I understand that it's a relatively new concept. So I'd love if you can tell us a little bit more about what led to this position being created. Absolutely. Yes, it is a relatively new concept. However, it has been around longer than everyone might think. Um, There have been pioneers in the field that have been in veterinary settings for decades. And um, I don't think that people really considered them veterinary social workers. They were social workers in veterinary clinics. And Elizabeth Strand out of University of Tennessee, Knoxville, is the, the pioneer for coining this field veterinary social work and created a program for social workers to to go through um, simultaneously while they're getting their master's degree or as a postgraduate certificate. And there are four main areas within this field. So their compassion fatigue and conflict management, communication support, that's one. Um, The link between human and animal violence, their animal-assisted intervention, the biggest one, <laughs> which I think most of us spend a lot of our time around, which is grief and bereavement around pet loss support. So um, the, the position that I am in is, is a new position here at the Virginia Tech um, Veterinary Teaching Hospital. So it's the first one that, that was created here. And it, it, it's been a wonderful thing to establish. It's primarily in response to this need for um, more support for clients as companion animals are becoming, you know, understood as family members and also to support um, the vet med team because there there are a lot of things and social workers, I think, are pretty well suited to um, slide into this role to support all of these different different needs in this niche. (laughs) So as as a veterinary team leader, what are some things that um, that we can do or I can do on a day-to-day basis just trying to help with the mental health of the veterinary team? That is a great question. So, and I, I just want to first acknowledge the challenge that veterinary team leaders have right now, um, you know, with, with a lot that's happened in our um, society recently in, in so many different ways. Uh, students that are graduating have come out of their their situations with new challenges, and and so I think that the things that, that veterinary team leaders can do, first of all, there's some evidence based 
you know, tips and strategies that are out there. Um, the Potomac Regional Veterinary Regional Coping Resilience and Challenges Team, which is a group of veterinarians and epidemiologists and um, human development specialists, including myself, out of this region, uh, Maryland, Virginia, and DC, have recently published a couple of articles um, in JASMA. And one of the things that we found were things that leaders can do to promote workplace um, resilience included, I guess, the things that we, we basically sent out a survey to find out what is working for people. And this, this happened during the pandemic. We wanted to know what can people do more of. And things like including fair pay um, were definitely highlighted, but what we saw the greatest contribution um, for resilience was making sure that people felt like they had a voice. So a sense of belonging and they felt a sense of autonomy and growth. And this matches previous research that we've seen um, for people's success in the workplace. So um, feeling empowered to stand up for yourself at work and being satisfied with your position, those are very key um, elements that are associated with positive work experiences and with resilience. Um, I think about Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General's recent initiative on loneliness and really all of that initiative that he's, he's promoting has to do with bringing people together and, and, and promoting the sense of belonging. And if you look at the Compassion Fatigue Research, a lot of the common elements have to do with relationships. So by saying somebody needs to be doing these things for themselves really kind of eliminates that key piece that we can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That is a hyperbole. It's just not physically possible. So we definitely need to um, recognize our relationships. Yeah, I um, I just wanted to jump in there and kind of uh, piggyback on what you were saying about, you know, engagement and ask you, are there any resources out there or articles referencing what can be done to do that for virtual teams? Because our team mm -hmm. is primarily uh, on the relief side is primarily virtual. And uh, prior to COVID, we were getting together you know, four, you know, four times, four or more times a year. Um, but even then I feel like is, is challenging to kind of keep engagement and to make people feel like you have like an open door policy when there's not like an office and they don't see you every day and they don't have those kinds of interactions. So if you have mm -hmm. any kind of thoughts or suggestions as far as how that could be done, um, you know, how people can feel like they have a voice uh, some of the things that I'm doing are mm -hmm. uh, making sure that I have regular meetings with people virtually, even if they're just like check-ins. So, uh, you know, every other month we have like a all, all hands on deck, you know, come if you can, non-mandatory, pop in, just say hi, kind of chat, catch up meeting. And then I have individual meetings with the team members, um, you know, on a, on a varying basis for some it's a little bit more because they need a little bit more mentoring and coaching and some it's a little bit less. Um, but those are just some of the ideas that I kind of came up with to try to keep that engagement and to make people feel connected. Cause I feel like with virtual teams, there's a definitely a, a disconnect. Yeah. I think those are all fantastic methods. I love what you do. 
the regular check-ins, the predictable meetings, and predictable is a key word there because when people know that they have that meeting set up, it's going to be happening at a certain time on a right on a certain basis, regular basis. They they can anticipate their um the the fact that they'll have their questions answered or that they'll get support. It's not knowing that gives people anxiety. That kind of questioning, when am I going to get support? Or do they even recognize? Those are the times when people start to spiral. So having um, predictability makes people feel safe and secure. And I I love that you talked about like just trying to connect with people um, virtually, just making that an intention. Connecting virtually is so different and it is so important. Um, even when we're not working face-to-face, you do miss some of the um, you know, elements that you get in person because you're seeing each other on the fly. And those particular moments um, have to do with more of our personal life, you know, that that visual of how they're walking down the hall or or did you see them react to something some a particular way. We're kind of missing those things. So I think we have to be a little more intentional in our meetings about asking questions like, you know, how are you doing? <laughs> like maybe more creatively and, you know, so that we get a response that that we're prepared to, you know, engage around. I think having a conversation about some things that are unrelated to work is really important because we don't, you know, we, we might be so efficient that we kind of miss the elements of what matters most to us in our lives. And so I think taking time maybe to check in at the beginning and the end of the conversation about things, it doesn't have to be a long drawn out conversation of oversharing. I think people can feel too vulnerable if we go down that path. So, you know, just, just caring moments, really moments. Yeah. So I love that you mentioned that because we also do like a quarterly meeting and because we have more team members that are not local to Northern Virginia, where the majority of the team is, we do virtual meetings as well. And so we try to make those really fun and kind of just to take the pressure off, like they're not mandatory, but the last one that we did, we did a virtual paint night. So we had dinner, everybody got a little DoorDash credit. And then um, I really want to shout out this one particular company that we work with that provides these paint nights um, because they're just phenomenal. Um, We've used them more than once and their name is Canvas Dolls. And so they will like send you the entire kit. They'll send you the canvas with a print on it and then the paint, the the paint brushes. And then they guide you through a meeting and they're, you know, they play little games where it's like, oh, would you prefer this or that? Like, you know, Coke or Pepsi or, you know, whatever, just like, you know, something to take the pressure off and just kind of, you know, sit and paint because that's therapeutic as well, you know, in itself. So I really want to highlight that and and suggest that to um, veterinary teams and, and any teams. I love that. I love that. And that gives people permission to relax. Yeah. So when I think about social work, I definitely think about the mental health crisis that our industry is facing. Many, many of our colleagues are suffering. Uh, So I would love to hear some concrete steps that we can all take to improve our quality of life. So I'm going to plug or um, give give a shout out to the Duke Center for Healthcare Safety and Quality. They have um, pulled together, Dr. Brian Sexton has spearheaded this I'm sure with a team of folks um, and they have a whole list of well-being tools that you can engage on this website. Um, I, I highly recommend going to this website because 
when we're talking about concrete tools to improve our quality of life, really what we're talking about is a holistic kind of snapshot. I, first of all, I'm a fan of tracking things. <laughs> um, I, I just, I think we need to know what, what is working within ourselves and what we need for ourselves to operate and function on a day-to-day basis. I think of my car that I had in high school. It was a 1972 Cutlass Oldsmobile, um, belonged to my grandfather. And every Friday afternoon at four o'clock, I needed to put brake fluid in it. It just was like without fail, it seemed like. Um, but we are like cars. And, and so I, I don't want to mention things that we need to do for ourselves um, ourselves without um, also acknowledging that I recognize burnout can be attributable to, you know, a lot of facets having to do with the culture and the organization and the structure of things. So there are systems issues that we need to focus on, but if we kind of drill down to what we can do concretely for ourselves, um, we really need to know what our bodies need. Our brains tend to follow our bodies. And so um, one of the most important tools that I have learned that I try to teach folks has to do with understanding and recognizing and being aware of tension that we hold in our bodies this might seem like a really kind of easy thing to do, but it's actually something that takes a lot of practice. Um, I recently went through yoga teacher training because I, I, after working with people going through trauma, um, recovering from trauma, I am learning more and more that our autonomic nervous systems really do um, hold everything. You know, our bodies hold everything that we experience. And so we've got to start with our bodies and, Notice throughout the day, like, are my shoulders up to my ears? (laughs) And um, have I hydrated? Um, These are really important things. And when I watch these students go through their programs, um, I I really feel like they're, like, training for the Olympics. The cumulative effect of all the stress does take a toll. Yeah, I... um... One of the resources that I have used in the past for uh, alleviating burnout is um, referenced in the book. It's called Burnout, and it's by the Nagoski sisters. It's a really easy read. I got it on Audible, um, and mm. you know they kind of talk about you know what you were mentioning about our central nervous system and how you know when when we're under stress. Uh, whether it's, you know, a car accident or something like that, or it's chronic stress, or our body has, uh, you know, we have some sort of health issue, our body has a physiological response to that, right? And um, our body was designed uh, in order to keep us safe. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that they mention is, you know, back in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the threat would be being chased by a lion, right? And so the the response that you have to being chased by a lion is to run, right? And running is what helps process those stress hormones through your body. So if you're being chased by a lion and you run from the lion, that activity helps burn those stress hormones out of your body. But, But now we're like, sitting at a computer in front of an email and maybe you get a shitty email from somebody and your stress hormones go crazy. You're not running from the lion anymore. And so those levels stay in your body and then it happens again and again. And and as it does with chronic stress. And so they were just kind of talking about 
a lot of the response to how to get rid of stress is to move your body, right? But that's not mm. that's not possible for everybody and it's not desirable for everybody. Like I love to hike, but but that may not be a desire for somebody else. So how do those people get rid of the stress in their bodies? And there were some really helpful suggestions in that book. So I would recommend to our listeners uh, to check it out if they uh, would like to hear those. But there were things like, hugging like human contact like a like a yeah. long awkward hug <laughs> a long like 20 second yeah. hug really but that, that oxytocin absolutely yeah 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 no so many things and and knowing what matters to us and making choices just to honor those those values those are this book sounds great there are so many different things and I think um having a willingness to to try them out and see what works is really important as well so what are some things that veterinary social workers do to support veterinary professionals? And if someone is interested in talking with you, how would they go about that? Absolutely. Yes. So veterinary social workers, we do a variety of things. We are here to support veterinary professionals in their clinical work. So we want to, I guess, in a way, offset that emotional burden <laughs> that that you take on as well, because you have so many hats that you wear. What we can bring to the table is our experience with, with clients, um, the human interaction. And that can be for a variety of, of issues. If there's someone, um, maybe an elderly client who's living alone or um, a family who has, um, you know, just recently lost, lost a dog or basically a lot of the support we can offer is, is in difficult situations with clients and ethical scenarios. So the, the types of issues that I've helped with range from, you know, supporting somebody who's an intimate partner violence or an elderly person who was having difficulty caring for herself and actually wanted me to make a call um, to get some more support for her through calling adult protective services. I, I know social workers can get a bad rap um, and there is stigma with our title. I just want to put that out there, but we are trained to work with people, to collaborate with people, to promote, um, you know, social support and, and really not to coerce. We do not go in with an agenda. We are there to meet people right where they are and walk alongside with them with compassion and, you know, respect for for their dignity and self-worth. So um, there have been a lot of difficult situations that I've been pulled into to help um, clinicians around that maybe they just needed to consult. But some of the issues that come up, um, I do find that that my, my role did play just like another person on the team. So I, I am invited in and then sometimes I'll notice the situation and I'll be pulled in. It, it happens both ways. Sometimes clients will self-refer. So it can happen in a variety of different ways. But we really operate similarly to a, a social worker in human medicine where we're part of the team. There's a nurse, there's a doctor, there's a specialist, there's um, you know a medical assistant. We would go in together and talk to the patient and do our own assessment. So. Um, we may not be as standardized in veterinary social work, but we, we definitely come in independently with our set of tools and, and can help with a variety of things. So in your work, Trish, is there something about your work that has surprised you? You know, um, 
I have been in awe of just how hard veterinary medical professionals work. I, I know I probably thought that before, but actually visually seeing it, I have had these visions of billboards on the side of the road, hug your vet. <laughs> I feel like the public needs more information about really the inner workings of your world. Um, you know, I, I don't know if public service announcements can, can um, if there are initiatives out there, but this is one, but I, I just, I feel like there needs to be more plug, you know, more plugging for how hard you all work. You serve a great diversity of species and you um, work from sun up to sundown and, and you really are working without breaks. If anybody's had a baby, they know how difficult those early months can be. And, and in a way you're taking care of, you know, a ton of babies. It, it's, it's, it's really the most fascinating role. And I'm, I'm just in awe of um, just the brilliance of every veterinary professional out there. You're, you're, you're using your mind, your body, your spirit, and in a fully committed way. And uh, there's a lot to be, um, just to be, I don't know, for society to be grateful for, for what you do for us. I mean, protecting us from infectious diseases, from um, all, all that, you know, putting food on our table. I just, I feel like you deserve more, a lot more <laughs> recognition as a profession. So how do we, how do we go about doing like as a profession? Yeah. I mean, what I, what I find when I talk to people, you know, just even in my French, my friend circle that have pets and they say to me, you know, why can't we find veterinarians? And I go into the whole suicide rates and they are always blown away. And I'm, and I say, I'm like, how are you my friend? Like, I see you all the time and you don't understand, but even people that are close to us, our spouses, um, our family don't understand what we go through. I mean, even for anybody that's, uh, you know, on here today, Michelle, Caitlin, like, what are your thoughts on how do we, how do we bring more attention to, to what we do and how much passion and effort we put into it? I think that's tough. I mean, I know that we've uh, we've talked about and Caitlin suggested a a client facing episode of the podcast to kind of talk about those things. And, you know, I think that that's a that's a good start. Um, you know, I think that um, I wish that there was more media coverage of the struggles that veterinary professionals are facing. Uh, I wish that I know, I may mean, know that there's been a handful of articles about the suicide rate climbing, um, but I still don't think that that is like, I don't think that it's understood. I don't think that the gravity of the suffering that is happening in our industry is really understood on a widespread basis. And I'm not sure outside of doing the things that we're already doing, how we can get that message out there. I have a, a dear friend in uh, the Northwest who reached out to me um, when she learned that I was doing this and, and just was like, wow, that's so cool. You know, I, I love that you're doing that. And I explained kind of how I, I came into this position. And she, she said to me, you know, I had no idea the struggles that veterinaries, vet, veterinarians have been facing. And she shared a, um, basically like a newsletter that her her primary veterinarian had sent out to her and it it opened her eyes and she said you know this this really helped me know what what 
they are experiencing. And it gave her a new appreciation. And I thought to myself, how cool that he did that. Like, but you know, I, I'm thinking of how busy everyone is. Like he has time to sit down and write the newsletter of, you know, the state of the veterinary practice and, and, you know, my inner workings. Um, but, but that was really, really cool to see her reaction to that. So in your work, I know that you work with veterinary professionals, but I know that you also work with clients. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what your you know work with clients entails? Yes. So I do support clients a lot around humane euthanasia before, during, after. And one of the things that I feel like a lot of people need help understanding um, they, a lot of people understand quality of life conversations, but there's the quality of death conversation. And I feel like that is not really well understood as a concept. So I try to educate folks on the elements of what a good death is. Um, it's, it's helpful when they recognize that they have some control in that situation when they do have control for some emergency situations, people um, are, are kind of, you know, pushed for, for making gut decisions based on financial need or ethical situations or other circumstances. Um, these are situations where I am there to, to really help be a grounding force so they can think um, any emote, you know, during that difficult time. And I'm also there to, to help with, you know, just strange things that come up. Maybe they're, um, they're caring for someone else's pet <laughs> and, and they just need help facilitating that conversation with someone else during a, you know, a difficult time. Um, some people reach out for grief support months after they've lost their animal. So I will have conversations around that. A lot of people get into the guilt kind of trap. And I think as much as we can intervene at the early point to help people recognize that they did the best they could in that moment. And, um, you know, everybody is caring for their animal with all that they have. And that's all you could ever ask for. Um, that's wonderful. Um, sometimes the guilt just still slips through the cracks and people just go down that spiral. And, and so those are some of the things that I help with to try to offset the burden that the veterinarians may get when they get those repeated phone calls, um, asking questions and, and to help people just process and make sense of what they went through. The human brain after a trauma is really trying to make sense so that it can gain a sense of competency again. And so I'm trying to help people's brains move through that um, and, and, you know, find that, you know, that thing that can help make meaning out of what happened um, so that we can heal. So my question uh, was similar to Michelle's. I mean, you pretty much answered um, the question about euthanasia and how you deal with, you know, clients that are struggling through euthanasia with a pet. Are there resources that we can, you know, I, we, we have a lot of clients that we deal with in hospice care with their pets and also that are faced with making the, you know, trying to make the decision, trying to decide if, you know, they, if their pets at that point, are those resources that you can share with us or just that we can put on our website that might help to guide clients? I send them to our website for things like, um, you know, just kind of keeping like a checkoff list to, to see if the the pet is having more bad days than good. But, you know, if you do have any resources available, we would love to have those on our website, especially how to deal with young kids that are going through this mm. in a family. Clients, a, a lot of times will ask me about resources for helping their children deal with losing. It's usually their first family pet. 
and just their first time even having to deal with with grief? Yes, yes, those are really great questions. And and people do need help with those situations. Um, I've had that question many times. I don't know how to tell my child. I don't know if they should be present. And you know, using actual words to help them understand the language of of, of death, so that they're not wondering passing away could to a child under the age of seven when they're still in that you know developmental stage of imaginary thinking may may lead them to believe that they could come back and so we want to be clear with our language and I'm a firm believer of including children um, in decision making that um, teaches them so many tools for life and and I think a lot of people I find after the fact realize their children may have been supporting them through the situation and, and were able to actually say things that just blew them away. So we definitely um, have some great tools out there. I'll, I will share some resources with you, but this right here, the Argus Institute through Colorado State University has some wonderful tools. They have a little um, booklet on making decisions and especially talking with children. And then honor, the honor the bond program out of Ohio State University has some wonderful tools on their website as well that often refer to those. So I would definitely check those out. So I would love to know um, what made you want to become a veterinary social worker? Oh, wow. Well, it's a very long story that I'll try to um, keep brief. <laughs> I was the child out of four that was always like bringing the squirrel that, you know, needed to be bottle fed inside. My mom would entertain that and actually help me, um, you know, raise it. And, and then I had voles of, I, I, you know, I had a lot of critters. Um, I brought home bunnies from a summer camp. What adult allowed me to do that without parent permission? So yeah, that was me. And in my, in my early twenties, I, I had my childhood dog with me. Um, and um, when I lost him after 17 and a half years, it was devastating. And so I remember flipping through the yellow pages looking for help. And I was like, oh my God, I have to talk to somebody. And there was a human animal bond specialist in the yellow pages, only one. And I lived in a metropolitan city. So I was like, wow, I found gold. And I went and spoke to her and she really helped me. And I will never forget the things that she encouraged me to do. In fact, I wrote a letter to my dog that was nine pages long and I still have it. I discovered it recently. It's been many, many years. And I just, I, that thinking that I, where I am now just is such a treat because of my ability to help others through this, you know, difficult time has, has been really fulfilling to me because of just everything that my dog meant to me. And, and Jane Goodall was like my hero growing up. So um, as a social worker, I never thought I would be able to do anything related to animals, but finding this niche was like wonderful for me. And uh, I was really happy that that I finally found it. That's amazing. Thank you so much. So just um, a qu follow-up question to your, your comment, where are, where can people find other veterinary social workers in the area? We don't want to send everybody that we know to you, but I know that after this episode, there, there will be lots of inquiries about 
veterinary social work services. So I don't know if there's like a website or if there's a way that we can, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just wanted to be able yeah. to give people resources on where to find another, another Trish. <laughs> yeah. I will point you to a recent development. So there's now an international association of veterinary social work. This has recently um, come together through some pioneers in the field. And you can find um, some information there. A, a lot of it is geared towards veterinary social workers as a, a hub for us. But um, information should be growing there um, for people to find resources. And every veterinary teaching hospital, I do believe, has one at this point. And the field is growing. And, and many veterinary hospitals, clinics around the country are hiring them. Usually folks that have worked in um, like hospital settings will find that this is a good kind of transition um, because we are in a medical kind of field as a veterinary social worker working on a medical, you know, a medical team. And, and so I would definitely look at, at your local teaching hospital for your, for your state or your region, and you, you will find someone like me or at least resources. And there are a lot of private practicing veterinary social workers out there. So the University of Tennessee, Knoxville is graduating a class every year. And I have a, a lot of peers who are going into private practice. So the field is growing. So you could Google and find us. <laughs> the episode that just aired uh, recently, we had two representatives of Not One More Vet on it. And, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about like what our first moment of losing somebody in the veterinary industry who died by suicide. And, um, and I just wanted to kind of ask a question around, you know, you, we mentioned earlier when we were talking about, you know, leaders in veterinary medicine and working with people and, you know, you can tell sometimes when somebody walks down the hall differently or maybe responds to, uh, a situation in a different way. It's a little bit harder when you're on a virtual team, but I would love um, if you have any sort of resources where people can go to get information on how to discover if their coworkers or colleagues are struggling. Um, we recently lost a uh, mentor and uh, we had seen him just a couple of months prior to that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know that I would have been able to see that he was struggling quite as much as, you know, he obviously was in order to uh, make such a decision and leave his family behind. Uh, so if you have any resources that uh, people can utilize to kind of be aware of what signs to look for, uh, if your colleagues are struggling and things that you can do to kind of reach out and help. I think that a lot of times we will put something out there like, you know, if you're struggling, reach out to me. But I, sometimes I feel like when people are struggling, they can't be the person that has to reach out. Sometimes they need, sometimes they need somebody to reach out to them. Sometimes Absolutely. they need somebody to go to them because they maybe just don't have the strength or mm -hmm. maybe it's, they're ashamed of it or, you know, it's just too much. Yes, Absolutely. One of the mottos that I've done my work by is when in doubt, reach out. I think, you know, if you've got kind of a nagging feeling, then do something, say something. If you're uncomfortable, then, you know, talk to a colleague, talk to a friend, find a way to follow up on that feeling that you have. And um, 
in terms of resources, I think it, everyone that can um, try to attend a workshop on QPR, question, persuade, refer. The AVMA has has a training out there. Um, you can go to the QPR Institute. There are other um, similar trainings out there. This is the one that I am trained in. I'm a gatekeeper training on this, and I do provide trainings to folks. There's also um, ASSIST. It's A-S-I-S-T. That is another suicide prevention training that is really, really great. I've completed their training um, in, in depth, and it's it's a wonderful way to learn the signs or any signs that people could be experiencing, as well as how to have conversations around this. QPR goes into myths around um, suicide, as well as cues, behavioral, social, verbal cues, people may give indirectly or, or directly. And um, it, it's, it's really helpful to kind of just get, get an overview of how to, so the Q stands for question, um, how to ask the question, and you practice that. P stands for persuade, and that would be really trying to connect with the person and refer is to take that next step. Um, and assist, A-S-I-S-T, goes into the art form of this conversation and kind of it attends to the to your just the nuance of it. It's it's also new for a lot of people to be in these conversations. Talking about it though is not going to cause it. That's a myth that's reviewed in QPR. So I, I highly recommend a training. Um, the other types of trainings that people can attend are mental health first aid, and um, there's also psychological first aid and. You could also, um, I guess, look into the community resilience model training that I mentioned earlier. There are lots of tools out there. Thank you. Yeah. And my condolences to everyone that was touched by your loss, the loss of Thank you. So how can our listeners support the work you're doing? Um, and if there are any like links or anything like that that you'd like to direct people to, um, we'd love to hear about that. Wow. Um, I, you know, I think supporting the veterinary medical profession. We are here for your work. And one of the best ways that our work can be supported is through, I guess, a willingness to allow us to support your work and to your spaces and see the potential that we we hold. I think what one of the other surprises I noticed um, in this position was, you know, people weren't familiar with the role and how are you going to be able to help you um, are a social worker. It, it didn't quite make, make sense to people who had never had a pre-existing kind of experience with me. But over time, they're like, oh, that makes sense. You can do that. And so their openness really did um, just, it was wonderful for me to experience that aha in their eyes because it just created this whole new world for me to, to support their work. And and those working relationships have just bloomed. Um, so I, I guess a willingness to just see what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thank oh, you so much. I love that. I um I think that it's I think that it's unfortunate. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I was gonna say I think that it's unfortunate that this field has to grow because there's so much crisis in our industry. But I think that it's a good, you know, I think it's a good thing. I mean, obviously any kind of medical work is going to have uh, ups and downs and trauma, right? But um, 
I think that, you know, growing awareness around the suffering that veterinary professionals um, deal with on a day-to-day basis might uh, make some clients who might be inclined to behave poorly, it might make them behave a little bit better if they understand what they're dealing with. I know that throughout this process, you know, um, we mentioned on a previous episode that, you know, we're working on writing a book about the veterinary industry and the crisis that it's in. And I think that, you know, through that process, we've encountered so many people that have been like, I had no idea, you know, through, um, you know, all the people that we've talked to, it's just, it's, it's surprising that there's this lack of knowledge and information out there about what's going on in the veterinary industry. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, uh, thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for helping us get the word out about what's going on in the veterinary industry and what people are doing to try to help. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and I love what y'all are doing. 